What I'm attempting to do today is to go into certain of the fundamental ideas of Purim and uh, what the real fundamental essence of Purim really is, which I'm sure most people would like to know. <coughs> I think most people s- tend to see Purim as uh, the essential ideas, Mashallah Monas, Matnas Anim, and so on, dressing up in costumes and so on. Uh, they're all very important, obviously all part of the halachos of Purim, but in terms of the essential idea which Purim really is celebrated for, how do we understand that? This is what I want to try to go into today. But in order to understand Purim, one really has to go back to Kabbalah Satera, Matan Tera, and you'll see the connection. Now, let's go back to Matan Tera. And... Uh, there's certain very interesting in Yonim when we think about Matan Torah. Uh, it says that the Yidin were Makabal Torah, and when they were Makabal Torah, they said Nasev Nishma, correct? But then later it says that the Rebbeinu had to take a tub and invert it over their heads like a mountain, Kofu Olehem Hak Gigis, and he said, if you accept the Torah Mutav, and if not, Shom Take for Aschem. Here you will be buried. In other words, obviously what the Rebbeinu was doing was forcing them under the uh, threat of death to accept the terror or not. So how do we understand obviously the difference between Nasev and Ishma and the idea of that the Rebbeinu had to force them to take the terror? The Rishonim deal with this question and their answer is that uh, um, when the Yidin said Nasev and Ishma, it was only in Tereshe Biksav. When the Rebbeinu wanted to give him the Tereshavah Peh, which is the oral law, there they didn't want to accept it. So there the Rebbeinu forced them by inverting a tub over the heads, a mountain over the heads, and said, uh, the mountain Harsin over the heads, and said, if you don't accept it, you'll all be dead. This is the, what the, what the Rishonim asked, the obvious stira between the, uh, what it says in the Torah and what it says, of course, in the Medrash. Ilmar, whatever. Now, it's interesting to note that really it's very difficult to understand for several reasons. First of all, Nasev and Nishma is a Kabbalah. Why did the Eden accept the Kabbalah by Tereshavik Sav? Whereas Tereshavah Peh, they didn't want. And the Roshim had to force them to accept the Torah. That's the first Kasha. Second Kasha is that Nasev and Nishma is a superlative Kabbalah. It was an excellent Kabbalah. They said, Nasa before Vinishma, we will do before we even understand why we're doing it in the first place. So the Kabbalah was a very good, it was an excellent Kabbalah. And for that Kabbalah, they got two kisaram, two crowns, the, med- the uh, Chazal say. That they got two crowns because it said Nasa and Vinishma. So Adraba, they had such a beautiful Kabbalah, why all of a sudden now, don't they want Tereshavah Third kasha is, wait a minute, then all Goyim could say, if you forced us, we would also accept the Torah. I mean, what's the kunz? That the Jews are the ones who observe the Torah. You force us and we'll also be, have to do this. So like, you know, what, what does it all mean? So those are certain of the difficulties in, in the idea of Matan Torah. Let's take a look at Purim. Purim is a very interesting yantu. Uh, you know, it's really very difficult to understand certain aspects. Let's understand Purim by several questions. The first question is, what is the essential idea of Purim? What really happened on Purim that made it a yontif for all generations? First question, what is the real idea, the essential event that happened? Is it because the Jews were saved from Mordechai? 
by Mordechai and Esther from Haman and Ahasuerus and so on? Is this what it's all about? Jews have gone through persecutions for thousands of times. This is not the only time they stood at the threat of death, right? So then, if that's the case, why all of a sudden is <clears throat> Purim so unique or stand out as opposed to all the other persecutions of the hundreds and thousands of years that Jews have gone through? Obviously, Purim has to contain something more essential, more important. That Chazal said, we are kovea it for yontem. First kasha. Second kasha. It's interesting that you find that Haman was an Amalek. He was an Amaleki, right? Or Agog, he was descended from Agog, he was an Amalek. All of a sudden, the, the enemy of Israel t- turns out to be an Amalek. Why? Why all of a sudden now, in the story of Purim, is the enemy of Israel turns out to be Amalek? What about all the other persecutions of, of, of Klai Israel? Is it always Amalek they're dealing with? What's the idea that Haman happens to be an, an Amaleki? Is it by design? By accident? It's something to think about. Third idea. Why is the Ness of Purim Behesta? All the other Nisim that Klai Israel went through was always Nisim. In fact, you'll find even after Purim there was a Ness. The Indian of Hanukkah by the nest of the, the menorah was a nest, right? The menorah was a nest, even though it wasn't direct, directly related to the uh, kibush of the conquering the Greeks, right? Besides the fact that the Greeks, conquering the Greeks itself was really a nest if you want to look at it because of miatim, rabm biad ma'atim. The multitude was captured by the minority. Okay, but even if you want to explain that away by saying great strategy and so on, but there were nisim by Hanukkah, you had the nest of uh, the, the, the nares. Clearly it was a nest. So therefore, why is it that Purim was such a great hot solo for Yidin? Was only a Yidei Teva. It was no, there was there was no ness at all. It was only behester. Why? Another kasha is that it says that Purim will be the yontif in Yemaisa Mashiach. Purim will be the only yontif celebrated. But anyway, that Purim will be the yontif in time of the Mashiach. So the question is why? I mean, Purim is not is not even a diraisa. And that yet that is the yontif that is celebrated by Jews in Yemaisa Mashiach. So really you have to understand how come. Also it says Yom Kippurim, that Yom Kippur is a day like Purim. Yom Kippur, Yom Kippurim is Yom Kippurim, a day like Purim. So if Yom Kippur is only like Purim, obviously Purim is greater. Why? How can Purim be greater than Yom Kippur? It's not even a derisa. I mean it's really incredible when you think about it. So we have these several questions on Purim that, uh, you know, it's really important to answer. Obviously, if one doesn't have the answer, one is missing certain fundamental ideas of Purim. Let's begin to try to answer these by going back, even before Matan Torah, to something which I had mentioned previously, but I'm going to cover it again. When the Revolution created the Bria, he made a condition with the Bria. He said, if Klai Yisrael accepts the Torah, or rather, if Yisrael accepts the Torah, Muta, good. If not, then it's then the universe goes back to chaos, it's the condition of chaos, okay? Now the question of course is, who was Yisrael at that time? Was he referring to the Ummah of Klai Yisrael, the present day Jews? The answer is that it's not Klai Yisrael that the Rebbeinu is referring to. Yisrael is not an Ummah, it's a concept. Yisrael means Yosho Kael, righteous of God. In other words, those people, those individuals or those people who have agreed to observe what God wants and they therefore will get ulama Habo for them the universe was created because the universe was created for what? 
that man should have Olim Habo, remember Toiv, Mative, Rosh wants to be Mative, so man should have Olim Habo, right? But he has to work for it, so therefore Olim Hazir is the place of work. So those people who agree to accept the assignment, they are Yisrael. You see? So Rosh said that if there will be an Ummah, any Ummah that will accept the assignment, it was worth, that was the whole point of the creation of the universe. If not, then the whole Bria is pointless. Because there's no point in the entire universe being created, because man won't work for it, so therefore he's only going to accept the Rebbe Hatova, only Ayadei Bechinam, which the Rebbe doesn't want because of the embarrassment and so on. So therefore that's what the Rebbe made the condition. So therefore the Rebbe waited for Adam. And he waited all the way down to Avram. Nobody accepted the assignment until Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu accepted the assignment. He said, I am willing to work to get Olam Habo. So Rebbe says, okay, I will make a covenant with you. And the covenant merely means that you are the individual that I created the universe for because you are going to accept the assignment. That's the whole meaning of the Brisbane Absorum. Avram was the first individual who promised to carry it on to his children and on and on to create a nation of, uh, of observant people. So if the Rebbe decided to make Avram Avinu the first Jew, Avram or Ivri, he was the first Jew, because he's the one who accepted the assignment. Therefore the Rosh made the bris with him, the covenant, the agreement. But, wait a minute, even if you make an agreement with somebody, how do you know that he will keep it? Or his children, whatever. So the, the idea is an idea, a concept that if a tradition is held in three generations, it will remain always with that uh, family, through all the generations. Even if it disappears, it will always resurface again. So the Rebbeinu so waited until Yaakov. This is why, uh, just to go back, this is why when we say in davening, we say Veharevno and make it pleasant in our, in our mouths and so on, and give the Torah Vetzetzu Einu, Vetzetzu Eitzetzu Einu, Vetzetzu Amcho Beis Yisrael. means give it to our offspring, their offsprings, and their offsprings, of three generations. That, so therefore, then we know that Torah will be, remain with us. The same idea of the uh, three, the idea of three as maintaining tradition. In any case, so the Rebunishim waited till Yaakov. And if Yaakov would observe the Torah, then you'd have three generations. And that's exactly what happened. Yaakov observed the Torah. So what did the Rebunishim do? He, he made the agreement with Yaakov where he appeared to him in the Sulam, right? By the ladder. And his name was called Yisrael. Yaakov was the first one who was called Yisrael. In other words, the concept Yisrael was now descended on Yaakov. Why? Because he was the third generation of Avram. Therefore, the tradition of listening or accepting the assignment of the Rebbeinu would now be done. Therefore, Yaakov now can be called Yisrael. That's why nobody else before him was Yisrael. That's why when he fought with the Malach, he was called Yisrael. And why did the Malach, when he fought with Yaakov, which was really the Tsar of Esau, why did he fight with Yaakov and nobody else? Because Yaakov was the greatest threat. Had he not vanquished Yaakov, then Yaakov would be the third generation, and therefore Terah would always be, or he would keep the Bechira, the assignment of Terah. That's why he fought with Yaakov, not with Avram Yitzchak. That's why he fought, and when he couldn't beat Yaakov, Yaakov beat him, what did the Malach call him? Yisrael. He, he won, the third generation won, he therefore got the name Yisrael. Okay, so now it comes out that Terah, or the assignment, was now accepted by Jews. Now, therefore, Yaakov can now have 12 sons, which is the beginning of Kal Yisrael. 
of us of, of Shvotim, right? Twelve tribes now could begin with Yaakov because the idea of Yisrael had now been finalized. And now we begin to see the emergence of the Jewish nation of twelve tribes. Now, we come to Kabbalah Satura. What happens in Kabbalah Satura? The version comes down, he gives him the Torah. And the Eden were murdered in the sense that they were Makabal Torah Bi'avo. They said Nasav and Ishma. Not only how great was Nasav and Ishma that the Chazal say that they got two Kisarab, two, two crowns. What was the Indian of the two crowns? I had mentioned previously. One crown is that they were Masik Yichut They were Masik the unity or the complete authority of the Rabbi Shalom as the only force in the universe. The second Hasagah was Yichud Mitzi Usoy, that you are Masik, that the Rebbe Shalom is the only thing that really exists. That's why Yidin died. Remember the Medrash says that everybody died by Kabbalah Satera? You remember that? Where he, where he died by Kabbalah Satera? So the Torah came to Rebbe Shalom and says, who even give me to dead people? So Rebbe Shalom said, I will, uh, I will uh, awaken them for you. Why did Christ will die? Because they perceived not only Yichud Shlitosoy, but Yichud Mitzi Usoy. So their Metzius was bottled. They died. If you perceive the Metzius of the Rebbeinu what happens? The your Metzius is bottled. You leave your goof and you go back to the Rebbeinu That's why the Misa that happened by Kleinsville is a direct result of the Hasoga they received. Why is it used in the name of Kese, two crowns? What is the, the signature? What is the sign of royalty? The crown. The crown is a sign of royalty, of kingship, right? So when you see the crown of the Rabbani Shalom, what does that really mean? You see the Rabbani Shalom in terms of that particular aspect that you're observing. So therefore, clients who have got the one castle, which is Yichud Shlitosai, they saw the Rabbani Shalom as the only force in the universe, which means they saw the crown. That means to be Masi Yichudi means to see the crown. It means to see, to be Masi the Rabbani Shalom. What part of the king were they masik? His absolute authority in terms of force or power. The second crown is they were masik the Rabbani Shalom, the king, which is the second keser, mitzad his mitzius, and then they all died. Okay, so we see that their kabbal was murdered. So then what happened by Teresha Bialpeh? Why did they reject it? Christ will felt, apparently, that it's too severe on human nature to restrict them with such a tremendous amount of restrictions. Because Tureh Baal adds to Tureh Shabbat immensely. Like I said, look at the difference between the Torah in terms of Mishpatim, the Dinam of Nezikin, and, 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 and look at the difference in Chayshim Mishpat. To, to assume the, uh, the mitzvahs or the obligations of Tureh Shabbat is far more difficult than Tureh Shabbat But the only reason why the Rebbe would give them Tureh Shabbat is only if they accept like Rabbi Yochanan says, that the version was only curious, only on Manas, because that's the theory in its totality. So therefore, but the Yidin was much too severe, so they said no. Not that the Yidin didn't want the Makablin. The variety of Makabal Tereshabah with a tremendous, excellent Kabbalah. But they felt they could not assume the obligation of something that they really couldn't keep. So they said, we cannot, we do not want it. We can't uh, assume such an obligation that we feel we really cannot keep. But there was a murdic also another idea, which we see. If Kaiser felt that they could not accept the Torah, what they also perceived and what they believed is that the Torah is a method 
that the Rebun Shalom gives, right? Forgetting Ulam Habo. And it's also the Rotten Habere. But who says it's the only alternative lifestyle in this Ulam Hazir? There are many alternative lifestyles. Look at the Goyim. For every nation, they have their own culture, their own laws, their own lifestyle. Clients who do not perceive the Amitas Yichud Terosoi, they perceive the Amitas Yichud Metziusoi and Shlitosoi, but that the Rebbeinu's Torah, that what he's saying should be the way of life, the clients will, was not perceived that it is the only way of life. There is no other way of life. So even if it's hard, you must assume Torah. So you have to be Omel in Schwitz. That's the only way. There is no other alternative lifestyle. Kaiser did not perceive that. So therefore, they rejected it in that sense. So the Bershom who knew that Kaiser, that it is the only way, and Kaiser did Makabal Torah, Nasa Vinishma, okay, so he forced them to take it because the Bershom knew that they can keep it, except right now they don't believe it. So the Bershom is patient. He'll wait. Laosid Loivu will come as man when Christ will accept the Torah, Shibiapeh, Biavo. When they themselves will perceive that they could accept it. So, therefore, even though the Bershom gave them uh, the Torah, Shibiapeh, Hakigigis, the Goyim can't say force us because they don't want any part of Torah. Christ will accept the Torah in spirit. And they accepted the Torah, But they felt they cannot keep all the incredible amount of laws of Torah Shabbat so they didn't accept it. But the Rosham knew that they really can't accept it. So he says, right now I'll force you. There will be a Kabbalah Beira, not Be'ava. You will see I was right. So that's what the Rosham did. So if the gun cannot kind of force us, because Christ did accept the Torah, except they felt they cannot accept all of it. And Christ will want to accept Torah Shabbat except they felt they couldn't. So therefore, we have an understanding of what was going on really by Torah, by the Matan Torah. Okay, so what does Rabbi Hashem do? He waits. He waits 800 years or 700 years until Purim. Purim was really the first time that the Eden were in Golos, right? They were among the Persians and they also were relatively free. After the Chorban bias, right, they went into slavery under Nebuchadnezzar and so on. We find that by Purim, under Ahasuerus, they were more freer. They were not in the category of slaves. They were much more free in that time. Vahariah, Ahasuerus makes a suda of a, a, a feast and he invites the Jews too. You don't invite slaves. Obviously the status was very different. It wasn't, they were not, they were sort of like Jews in America in that sense. They were part of the citizens of the country. They were not slaves in that sense where they were under Nebuchadnezzar much more in Shibud. So what happens? What happens by Purim? Christ will all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, decides to enjoy the feast of Ahasuerus, which he had when he was appointed king, whatever, in terms of the Medrash. Wouldn't Christ will decide to join Ahasuerus? Well, there's nothing wrong with joining Ahasuerus by his Suda. He's providing kosher food and so on, whatever. There's nothing wrong with sitting down with the Goyim and enjoying their success also, they also have a lifestyle. They also have a way of living. Torah may be superior, we believe that, right? But Goyim also have a lifestyle that makes sense in Ilum Hazer. That allows Klai Yisrael to join with the Goyim, which is what they did. It's almost happening in America, where, okay, you can go to Acapulco, you can do many things as long as there's kosher food. There's nothing wrong really with that lifestyle. 
So Kleinsville decides to join the Suda. What does Ahasuerus do? Kleinsville realizes all of a sudden that after Homan arises, now they are going to be annihilated. But wait a minute. Not only are Goyim not appreciative of the fact that we want to join them, okay, want to show the recognition of their lifestyle and so on, not only do they not accept us, on the contrary, they want to annihilate us. It's incredible. Goyim want to annihilate Eden. And what's the kinder of Haman? They are Amaphirad. But that's incredible. They had, they sat down by the Suda to join Ahasuerus, right, to be part of the kingdom, and Haman is that they are Amaphirad. They stay by themselves, they don't fraternize with the Goyim. It's Venahapichu, right? Venahapichu, it's a Hefach. Christ who wants to join the Goyim in that sense, be part of them, assimilate with them, whatever. And Homan uses the very opposite of what they attempted to do. And we'll see the idea of Nahapichu, why it's such an important idea of Nahapichu and Purim. But in any case, so the Eden realized in a, in a thunderbolt, the entire Kleinsville was going to be destroyed. Why? Because they thought the Goyim had something to offer. This is what the Goy does. So Kleinsville realized that without Torah, it's not Stam, you, ha- you don't have Torah because if you don't have the Torah. You're a barbarian. There is no other civilized kind of lifestyle if you do not have Torah. So Christ realized that Torah is not only a means to Elam Haba, it's the only way to live in Elam Hazeh. It's what makes you civilized. Because look at Ahasuerus. He was going to destroy him for nothing. They were all loyal people. They even wanted to join him by the Suda. So Christ realized, and then it hit them, that there is no other method of living besides the Torah. Torah shall be our path. So they were massive at that point in time because of the annihilation that Ahasuerus and Haman. The Indian of Amitas Yichud Terosoi. Not only the Rebbeinu is a Yochid and Shlitim but his Rotzen in terms of his Torah is the only way man can exist. That's the, that's the idea of the Amita, the truth, the veracity of the Yichud of his Torah. That Torah is the only law that man can live under. Anything else is barbaric. So Kaiser realized, so Kaiser made an about face and he will macabre the terror anew. That's why Chazal say in the Yimei Achashverosh, in the, those days, they were Kimu Vikiblu. The Megillah says Kimu Vikiblu. So Chazal Darshan, Kimu, they fulfilled Masha Kiblu Kva, what they had received previously. In other words, there was a new Kabbalah. Kaiser was now macabre, Tereshabapeh, Bi'avo. Because they realize it's the only kind of way that man can live. So there was Purim, the greatness of Purim is that it's a new Kabbalah. It's a Kabbalah Bi'ava, which reverses the old Kabbalah Bi'ira. It was a Gemar of the Kabbalah. It finished the act of Kabbalah Bi'ava. And the Rabbani Shalom in the end was right. Because he knew in the end Kleiswell would accept it and they could keep it, which they have done for the past thousands of years. So the significance of Purim is, n- is not, it not only in the events of Purim, it's the result of Purim, that a result of the annihilation, the fact that they were saved, they realized that Torah is the only supreme way of living. So they were macabre the Torah Purim is the Gemar of Matan Torah, which preceded it by 800 years. That is the Yisoyed and the greatness of Purim. Kimui Masha Kiblu Kva. 
they, they, they fulfill the Torah. Now, really, what they were makabal 800 years before, Bi'ava, they were makaymet, not Bi'ira. Because what do you mean, Kima Shekilbukva? What does that mean? They were fulfilled what they accepted 800 years ago. They've been, they've been fulfilling that Torah for 800 years. But they were makaymet Bi'ava, what they were makabal 800 years be, before, Bi'ira. This is what the, signi- the significance of Purim is. Now, let's see how this understanding lends us the, to, uh, on, to, to gives us the answers for the questions that were asked. We now begin to understand what the fundamental idea of Purim is. is the essential idea of Purim is not only in its events, but more important in the result of the events of the Hatzorah. The fact that Yidin realized the Torah is the only way of life, even if it's difficult. So therefore you do it, even if it's difficult, it's the only way around. Because they observed what, the, what kind of civilization the guy has. That as long as he's not, he doesn't have a, uh, a higher being or power over him, then he'll do whatever he wants. Achashverosh wants the money, so kill the Jews. Therefore the only way to really, in Olam Hazer, to have a civilization is really to accept the Torah and once that means then you, of course you accept the Torah in its entirety there's no such thing as a half a code so therefore they accepted it and that's what Chazal mean came with the Kiblu and therefore it was Bi'avo which and the Rebbeinu of course proved that he was right 800 years later that's why Purim is so great in terms of the fact that it became a Yomtev because Purim is, is really the Gemar of Shavuos in terms of a Kabbalah Satera it wasn't Stam and Indian of persecution. It was the results of the persecution forced them in a certain sense to see the truth. And the Umakabal Turbi Avo. That was such a great awe that came down to the Bria as a result of the fact that the Kleisel was Makabal Turbi Avo that it was worthy to become a Yontif, Mamish. Because it wasn't the fact that they were saved from persecution. It was the re-dedication, the re um, um, Accepting of the Torah Bi'ava that made Purim such an incredible yontif, besides the idea of persecution. But that goes many times that the Jews were persecuted. But Purim is the result of what they did. They re-accepted the Torah and there was an incredible awe that came down as a result of that. This is the essential idea and the greatness of Purim. Now, <clears throat> besides that, the other questions that were asked, what about the idea, <clears throat> why was Purim Behesta? Because what the Rebbeinu said to Kleinsville, you have not been makabal my Torah Bi'avo completely with all the giloi that I've given you. Remember Matan Torah, there's an incredible amount of giloi in Ha'orah by Matan Torah. And Alpha became the Eden. So the Rebbeinu said to you, you will see that I am right. And not only that, you will makabal Torah Behesta, not be giloi. What the Rebbe showed them is that you will see I am right to such an extent that you will want the Torah behest without even seeing me. That's how right you will see I am. So therefore the events of Purim are merely Behesta, where you don't see the Rebbe Because the Rebbe is going to prove to Klai Israel that they will come to the Hasaga of the Amitas Yichote Rosoi Betoich Heste, not Betoich Gilo of the Rebbe where it's far easier. So therefore Purim occurred in Mishindik Hester. In order to allow Christ to see that you're not taking the Torah because God revealed Himself. You're taking the Torah because you realize that Torah is the only way. That's a far greater Kabbalah than the Makabal the Torah when the Rebbe shows Himself completely, right? It's obviously easier to Makabal the Torah when the Rebbe shows Himself the way He did 
by uh, by the Yamsuf and by Kabbalah Satura, right? Much easier. So Bereshim shows that you will see that I am right, but to Echmuridik Hester that I was right. So therefore the events of Purim occurred between Hester, that Kriyasville should see that the Rebbe was right, and they will come even in terms of that tremendous Hester. Now, in terms of why Taka is Purim the only, uh, Purim the Yontif of the times of Mashiach, because now we understand, what is the whole purpose of the Mashiach, the task? It's the Megal Yehudai to reveal the unity of the Rabbanu Shalom Bishlemus in the Bria. At that time, everybody will see that only the Rabbanu Shalom, he will be Echod, is throughout the Bria. Mitzad, Mitzias, and Shlit, and so on. So therefore, the Mashiach is Megal the Yehud of the Rabbanu Shalom completely. There's no more Hester, there's no more Choshech. What is the Yontif of Purim really all about? The realization that the Rebbe Shalom is Echod in all his ways, even in his Torah, is the only way that clients will can observe or live in society. In other words, Purim is the Gemar, the finishing, the completion of the Yichud Bishlemus, where clients will saw that the Rebbe Shalom was one in every aspect, in his Metzius, in his Shlita, and in his Torah. It's all one. There is nothing else. In ter- only what the Rebbe offers is the only thing. So Purim, the joy that the Eden received in Purim was the realization. It was the Shlemus of the Hasogis Yehudai. And that is the Yontif of the Mashiach. Because he also brings the Shlemus of the Yichud of the Rebbe That's why Purim is the Yontif which is celebrated. The results of Purim where the, the Hasog of Yehudoi is Hasog of Ishlemus completely, the same idea the Hasog the Hasog in Mashiach is Hasog of Yehudoi also completely. It's the same, the message of Purim is the same simple by the Mashiach. Therefore Purim becomes the Yontif of the Mashiach because it's really the same idea, the same message. In order to understand why is Yom Kippur, Yom Kippurim, right? What is Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is Tshuva. What is Tshuva? It's a re-Kabbalah, isn't it? Where Yom Kippur Omar Hushamayim, correct? But why Yom Kippur Omar Hushamayim and Yom Kippur? Because the aim of Din, the fear of judgment. In Purim it's also Kabbalah of Torah. Why? Be'ahava. It's a Merdik Simcha. So which is greater? Kabbalah be'ir or Kabbalah be'ahava? Obviously Kabbalah be'ahava. That's why Yom Kippur is a day like Purim. Because Yom Kippur also has a Kabbalah, Kabbalah's Omar Hashemayim, which is Tshuva, but it's Be'ira, not Be'ava. So therefore it's like Purim. Purim is talking the Kabbalah Be'ava, you see. So therefore Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim. It's a day like Purim, which means it has the same idea, Kabbalah's Omar Hashemayim, but it's not as great as Purim because it's Be'ira, whereas Purim is Be'ava. So therefore we now understand certain of the ideas, why Yom Kippur is Kippurim, why Purim is the yont of the Mashiach, why Purim happened by Hester, what the essential idea of Purim, in terms of its recognition that Torah is the only way of life. Now, we have mo- one more question to answer. Now, why is Haman an Amaleki? So therefore, let's, let's understand something about Amalek. Amalek is a very interesting parsha. Amalek is a very interesting Ummah. What is Amalek? What is the, why does God hate Amalek? so much. We have to understand. 
Why does Rabbi Moshe hate Amalek so much that he w- he's willing to destroy every man, woman, and child, even the behemoths? You have to destroy. What does he want? Why the behemoths? Because you shouldn't mention even the name Amalek. Say that animal used to belong to Amalek. Not because the animal is guilty, because it may cause us to remember that there was a nation Amalek. Get rid of it. So therefore, what is, why is that, that the Rebunshim hates Amalek to such an extent where the Rebunshim says in Bishalach that the Rebunshim wars with Amalek. Midor, Dor. God wars himself with Amalek in every generation. And it says, I will blot out Amalek, the Rebunshim says. So we have to understand what is the uniqueness of Amalek that it's so connected what the Rebunshim stands for. And the second thing that would be interesting to know is, what about Esau? Esav was also a Russia. What's the distinction in Esav that's different than Amalek? That the Russian doesn't swear to destroy Esav in that sense like he swears to destroy Amalek. Amalek really, there's something much more uh, evil or whatever in Amalek than in Esav. Not only that, it's interesting to see that Amalek is the grandson of Esav. Amalek was the grandson of an Esav. How is it that Esav came first and then Amalek came third in that sense, he's a descendant of Esau. So they have, obviously they're related. How is Amalek and Esau related? Yet Esau is better than Amalek, in the sense that Russian wants Amalek to be killed, whereas Esau he will because of what they did to the Jews, but it doesn't have the same enmity that Russian has toward Amalek. Let's take a look at Amalek and Esau. What did Amalek do? Amalek is if, um, in order to understand Amalek, and then you see how it makes sense in the Torah, Amalek is the quintessence or the personification of evil itself. Amalek is Ra. Amalek doesn't have evil, it is evil. What does evil mean? Amalek is the personification of man's omnipotence, as opposed to everything else. The evil that Amalek is, is Gaiva Niflo, Pure gaiva, pure unmitigated, unadulterated arrogance or megalomania. Notice Amalek thinks that it is supreme in the universe. There is no other being that it has to fear at all. It is what's called the arrogant man in its quintessence. Man's omnipotence personified in an Ummah is Amalek. That is what the characteristic of Amalek is. Man's arrogance to the nth degree that's why Amalek is pure evil because it's the opposite of the Rebbein which is Yichud Mitzius and Yichud Shlitosai and Amalek is what? is Ribu Mitzius and Ribu Shlitosai Amalek is an Ummah that personifies a multiplicity of forces it's Misnagi Tenege the Yichud of the Rebbein and it declares its own supremacy against the Rebbe against everything else. That is the uh, essential idea of Amalek. Not only that, what did Amalek do? The Torah says that, Asher He met you on the way. The Medrash says that Amalek went over the lands of five nations to get to Klai Israel. So obviously Klai Israel was not a threat to them because it was near their territory. Kaisel was not a threat because they were a strong nation, therefore possibly they can be a threat from afar because you were tired. The regime is telling you why did they go after you? They went after you to destroy you because Kaisel is now bringing the message to the world 
of Yichud Metzius and Yichud Shnitosoy. And this Amalek would not tolerate. They went after clients who on their own initiative to destroy an Ummah that was bringing the most dangerous message of all to the world that they perceived. And that is that man is not God. That there is a God above man. You see? That's the idea in the state of Hintura in that way. That was his Timcha, you must blot Amalek because Amalek is the antithesis of the Midas, of the traits of the Rebbe in terms of Yehudai. Amalek is the opposite. That's why <coughs> Amalek, somebody once told me, Amalek is Rashi Tevis. Ol Malchus Kiblu. The kingdom of heaven, Le Kiblu. They do not recognize a being above them. They're not makabla anything in that sense. They believe only in the supremacy of man, the omnipotence of man. That's why when Chazal refer and they ask Homam, where is Homam Marumas in the Torah? Chazal ask on each one, Esther, where is Homam Marumas in the Torah? Because Where's Homam Marumas in the Torah? Because it says, Hamin who eats from the tree I told you not to eat. So Homam, Hamin who eats. But wait a minute, what is that eats? That eats was the Yoide Tevara. So Homan is Minho Eitz. Homan didn't eat from the tree of evil. Homan was part of the tree of, that had evil. He was Mamish, evil incarnate. That is an Amoleki. That's what Amolek means. To be Mamish, evil itself. That's why the Rebbe says that my kingdom and my name will not be Sholeim until Amolek is destroyed. It says Yod Akes Yod. That the Rebbe says that my kingdom and my name is not complete shulen until Amalek is destroyed. He's not referring only to the Ummah, but he's referring to the... It's the idea that anything who believes that there's anything besides Yichud of the Rabbanish Shalem must be destroyed and then the Rabbanish Shalem is Shalemusin is Yehudai. That's why it says, when the Rabbanish says, Mochri Emche, why is it too long by... Bishat the Rabbanish says, I will destroy. He uses Tulushonis. Whereas by in Kisetze it says, Timche, you should destroy. Because the Rebbe will destroy them not only Mitzad is but Mitzad is Mitzias. He will destroy them. Clients will can only destroy them in terms of the power that they have on earth. But the force of Amalek, the Sitra Achra and so on, remains. The only Rebbe can go and destroy the actual force. So therefore there's the Yichud Shlitose, which is one Mechia. When God destroys, what is he really doing? He's bringing out the unity or the yichud of, of Yishlita and emche of his mitzias. That only the Rebbeinu you can only be timche, you can blot them out from this world, but the Rebbeinu can be moche emche from complete utter existence. That's why there's a double lashon by the Rebbeinu And maybe you think that Amalek has something personally against God in the sense that they are really doing damage to God. So the Rebbeinu says, Zoha asher also Amalek. Remember what Amalek did to you. Amalek does nothing to reverse from Mitzad Atzmusoy. But in terms of your perception of my Yichud Shritosoy and my Yichud Mitzusoy, they are interfering. Amalek. Know what they did to you? They do not allow you to perceive my Yichud Mitzius and Shlita. They don't do anything personally to me. That's what the Rebbe It should just say Zohar is Asher Osa Amalek. We mean lechor because they only do it to you, not to me. The evil they do is not to me because the version is beyond any damage that Amalek can do. So therefore, we see the ideas of Amalek. What is Esau? 
Asif is what? Asif is Asif's derech is not like a molek, even though Asif has murdi gaiva like a molek, but Asif needs a front. He needs religion. Asif has to do his rishus mitzad religion that allows him to do his rishus. Just like Asif, remember Asif? He said, "Should I mice his salt?" He went yeah. to remember he went to Yitzchak. What was Asif doing? Asif needs a front, he needs a religion in order to do his evil because he fought recognizes some supremacy of the Rebbe but what he does is he manipulates God to do what he wants like the Crusades they all wanted the Jewish property so they, what they do is they made killing Jews a holy war Adra, but they, their God commands them to kill Jews that's what Asif does Asif goes under the veneer of religion he needs a front he needs legitimacy for his evil because he fought recognizes something of the Rabbi Islam. So what he does is he makes his God say exactly what he wants to do. And therefore he's allowed to kill Jews or do any evil he wants. That's the difference between Esav and, and Amorim. You start out like an Esav because Esav had contact with Yitzchok and Yaakov where you must recognize the Rabbi Islam, right? And therefore, but you want to foreddo your evil, your gaiva, so you use them as a front, you make believe you're from, and eventually you descend into an Amalek, where you throw off the whole veneer of religion, and you don't need it, and you go after religion, and that's what Amalek did. That's why the Rabbanishim's Vlayurielokim, they were not fearing the Rabbanish, they don't fear God, the Yorielokim goes on Amalek, not on Klai Israel, which means that Amalek didn't fear God whatsoever. Adraba, they want to destroy the people that were bringing the message that only the Rebbe is supreme. That is the difference between Esau and Amalek, and that's clearly the difference between America and Germany. What was Germany? Which is Zich Amalek, and the Goyen holds that, that the Amalek, what was Hitler's, Imachimah, what was his, he wanted to kill the Jews, Mitzad, what they were bringing to the world. Hitler hated Jews purely because they existed. Hitler believed in what? In the Aryan, the superhuman, the concept of Nietzsche, the idea of an Aryan race. Man was God. So therefore, what Hitler did and what Germany did was destroy Jews in the same characteristic that Amalek would destroy. America, which is Asaph, personifies Asaph, because Asaph is really Christianity, does all the gaiva and taiva they want under the veneer of religion. That's the difference. Again, you see the difference between the way Amalek handles its riches and the way Esav handles its riches. Same idea between Esav and Amalek. So therefore we see that Amalek is the quintessence of gaiva or evil whereas Esav goes about legitimizing what it does in religion but still doing its gaiva and its riches. And we see that illustrated by Hamino Eitz of what Amalek is, Rashatavis and so on. Not only that but there's a, there's a, you know, it says rak rak la yoyim, that the, in the times of uh, of Noach or before that the uh, that the the uh, inclination of man's heart is always evil and all, rak rak kol yoyim, he does evil all day. Rak rak kol yoyim, I think the Ger Rebbe says the safe of the Tevis is Amalek. Amalek does rak rak kol yoyim, or he only does evil because he is the quintessence of evil. This is what the idea of Amalek is. So therefore, interestingly enough, we now see that where did Amalek come in the Torah? In Bishalach. Where did they come right before Kabbalah's Torah? Was Amalek. Amalek comes right before Kabbalah's Torah, right? 
when what what was Purim? Kabbalah Satera. Who is the one who precedes Kabbalah Satera by Purim? Also Amalek. You find therefore that in in uh, the idea why Haman was an uh, was an Amaleki, because the whole idea of Purim was that the Yidden would be Makabal Terbi Ava, Makabal Terbi Ava. Then what always comes before the Yidden Makabal Terah is the force of Amalek to destroy that Kabbalah before it can take shape, and we find the exact parallel in the Terah. Amalek is in the end of Beshalach, right before Yisrael, right. Haman is right before Kabbalah Satira by Purim. So in other words, the Sitra the force, which is really Amalek, the Gaiva, wants to destroy the entire union of Kabbalah. So they attempt to destroy the Jews before they will get Kabbalah Satira. That's the Sitra ploy. That's the way he wants to do before the Yidna Makabal Terah, because of course Terah will eventually destroy the Sitra Akhra. Therefore, you have Amalek before Kabbalah Satira by Nechumish, by Bishalach, and you have Amalek, which is Homan, before Kabbalah Satera by Purim. So therefore, by understanding Purim as a Kabbalah Satera, we understand why Homan turned out to be an Amaleki, because that's exactly the one who goes after you, is the Amalek, because Amalek is the opposite of what Terah says. Terah is Kabbalah's Omach Hashemayim, the Rotsen Habere, which restricts man, limits man, and Gaiva says man can do anything he wants. Amalek is the antithesis of what the terrorist says. Terrorist says that man is subjugated to a higher power, namely the Rebbe Shalom, and he has to subjugate all his actions to the Rebbe Shalom. And Amalek says man is the supreme. Let's kill the Jews before they bring that message. So we've now seen what Purim sort of essentially is, that the idea of Purim is a Gemara, Kabbalah, Satur, Bi'avo, answers many questions and also we understand now the union of Amalek what characteristics are Amalek you can almost identify nations by the way how they behave what characteristics Amalek has and it's interesting that Yosef Hatzadik who's the forerunner of the Mashiach Ben Yosef who's Magali Yehudai understood that that Jews cannot fraternize when the Jews came to Mitzrayim what did he do he put them in the land of Goshen he put them away but then it says, After Yosef died, the earth was full of them. And what is the next Pesach? Right after the whole Mitzrayim was full of Jews, Jews did not stay in the boundary of Goshen. They started spreading and fraternizing with the Mitzrayim. The whole land was full of them, beyond Goshen. What's the next Pesach? Which began the Tzaras of Eden. So Moshe, who was the forerunner, of course, Moshiach ben Yosef, realized that the only the Yichud Metzius of the Yichud Terosoi, therefore separating Goshen, but the Eden of course spread out and therefore again Mitzrayim came upon them. These are so, some of the ideas of Purim that I just wanted to share with you. Last week, what we've been talking about so far is the entire idea of psychological phenomena and how we can understand them in terms of certain principles of Hashkofa. And what begins to what we begin to see is that one can actually explain many of the psychological phenomena that we observe, many of the fundamental drives in people, based on Hashkofa itself. And what I want to do this week is I'm still 
haven't finished the sheer in the idea of psychological phenomena as explained by Hashkofer principles. So what I want to do is review what we've covered last week. And then I want to go over the questions that I asked previously, which I didn't really answer. I did a very rushed, uh, so I just want to go over clearly each question and answer it. Uh, so I'm going to give a review and then go back over those questions that I asked. And then we'll continue on to an understanding of what the Eitzatev is, the good inclination is, in terms of psychological manifestation. Now, if you recall that what we saw last week was the idea that the neshama, when it enters the guf, undergoes or experiences certain changes in terms of the way it feels about itself, what it recognizes, and so on. One of those things that it experiences is that it is severed from its relationship with the Rabbani Shalom. Previously it was in a state of vacuous, and now, and therefore, it was feeling a sense of what? Of perfection, of being. Once the neshama is inserted in that body, what happens? then that state of vacancy is gone. The body is now an obstacle to that state. So obviously, if it's severed from its relationship to the Rabbani Shlom, then what happens is, is that it does not feel the Shlemus, the perfection. So it obviously has less of a sense of being than it had previously. So therefore, what I'm saying is that the Nishama now begins to feel a deficiency in self. Its feelings of self I, whatever, ego, whatever you want to call it, it feels less. It doesn't feel as if it's a real self. This is what's happening as a result of the fact that it's inserted into the guf. So we begin to see an existential deficiency or feeling of a lack of being. If you want to call that an existential inferiority, okay. As a result of the fact that it becomes man, which is an ashoma in a body, it now begins to experience existential inferiority, a lack of being. So this is the uh, beginning or understanding of a fundamental drive, a, which has its origin in the neshama. Now, what happens when the person now, as he gets older? So I explained last week that the idea of the neshama not experiencing this drive, the neshama now wants to do the opposite, to assert or confirm its existence, to reaffirm, right, to corroborate its being, as a result of the fact that it existentially feels a loss of being. So therefore, when the person grows up as an infant, what does he do? Since he has that need, which is the deficiency of being, he then begins to have feelings of omnipotence, which of course is trying to fulfill the need. He feels a lack of being, so the infant begins to have that feeling of omnipotence, the infantile omnipotent fantasies. But if you recall, he does that through a process called primary process, where he merely wields to feel like a being, and poof, he is. And I mentioned that the idea of primary process thinking, which is a divine act really, because who ever heard of somebody willing and something happening? Only the can do that, that's only spiritual beings do that. Man has to act in order to get things done. Spiritual beings merely will and things get done. But in any case, the Nishama retains that illusion or rather that, that trait of primary process thinking and it tries to use it as an infant. But it doesn't work of course. Because in the world, the physical world, you can only get things done by physically interacting with the world. So it has the illusion that it can get feelings of omnipotence merely by willing it or feeling it. 
But of course, since the infant has an unsophisticated ego, it's not aware that the world, there's a whole world of reality that you must interact with that world to get things done. So therefore, it tries to do it this way. And that's the entire idea of magical thinking, also primary process thinking. And I had mentioned that the idea of primary process thinking continues in the adult life also, in terms of dreams, daydreams, when a person fantasizes and so on. The fact the person attempts always continuously to try to achieve some fulfillment of a deficiency or a need by thinking about it. And lo and behold, when you think about many things, you get a vicarious sense of fulfillment. That's the reason why it actually works. There is something that is going on. And, they are, and, and that's the reason why the Nishama attempts this particular operation, or rather the person attempts, because it still has the vestige in terms of when it was a Nishama without a guf. Now, <clears throat> as the person gets older, what happens? His ego, the self, becomes much more sophisticated. It perceives reality. And it knows that in order to get anything done, to fulfill any needs, you must involve yourself with the world. Right? Obviously you have to involve yourself with the world. So what the person does in order to get a sense of self, right? It now has to involve itself with the world. Now, as an adult or even as a child, that feeling that a, a person wants to get, that he feels like somebody, like something is called self-worth. So what's being understood now is that the drive, the psychological need, and therefore the psychological drive, of self-worth, self-esteem, self-respect, whatever you want to call it, has its origins in the spiritual universe, namely the origins in the fact that the Neshama was separate, separated from the Rabbani Shalom. And that manifests itself in Adam as a drive for self-worth. So therefore, in order to get the self-worth, it must involve itself in the world which it recognizes as a sophisticated ego. It sees that it must involve itself in the world. So it gets involved in the world in one of four ways. It, 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 one of the ways of re-establishing a feeling or a sense of being is by expressing one's will. When a person expresses will, when he exercises being, in other words, he expresses will, he gets a sense of being. Because you feel like something when you are acting as a thing. You know, when you are acting as that which you are, you feel that you are that thing. So a person gets a sense of self by acting as a Adam, as a self, and that is, it expresses its, its uh, will. It uh, expresses its will in terms of pleasures, whatever it wants to do. It goes this way, pleasures, whatever kaivas, whatever pleasures or drives that the person has. That's one way it gets a sense of, of a sense of self. The second way, another way of getting a sense of self, is the idea of productivity. When you are productive, when you are successful, then you have a tremendous sense of being, of self. You feel great about yourself. You feel as if you're something. Unfortunately, people get carried away and they begin to feel they're everything because they're very successful in business or whatever. But the idea of productivity is one of the ways of getting a sense of self. That's a second way. A third way is by achieving mastery, control, or power over other beings. And of course that also gives you a sense of self. When you have these kind of control, because by controlling other beings, one gets a sense of their own being. It's an illusion of potency. That's the idea of omnipotence. Potency, you can get things done. Another way is the idea, of course, of not only of expressing will, 
or uh, being productive or controlling. And possessions, by the way, comes in the idea of control. The drive to have possessions really because the more things you possess, obviously the more things you control. But besides those three ideas, is also the idea of the way an Hashem gets its sense of self in the sense that it wants to have the ability to be able to control others, even if it doesn't outrightly do it. And how does it do that? By acquiring money. Money, even if you never use it, gives one an incredible sense of self. I mean, if you have a million dollars in the bank, you feel great, even if you don't use it. Because you know that you have the ability to do whatever you want. Just the ownership of money. Because money provides you with the, with the wherewithal to do almost anything really you want. So therefore you try to acquire money also. And we find that the uh, Torah alludes to these four ways. As I mentioned last week, where the Torah says that you will forget the Lord and not do His mitzvahs. Why? Because you will eat and be satisfied. That's the expression will having tithes. The next uh, statement the Torah says, and you will build houses and live in it. Building houses, productivity. The third idea the Torah says, and you will have a lot of cattle possession and the fourth idea is you acquire a lot of money money I mean literally the four ways and what will happen as a result you're going to say that it's my power that has gotten me all these goods and devotion is not your power it's my power that's the one who's gotten you these goods so we see that the devotion himself tells you that you're going to have this drive and that you're going to do these things and what's going to happen is you're going to get one of several levels of a sense of self Either you're going to feel self-complacent, which means even if you are outwardly okay, you're not condescending or arrogant, but you, it's like they say in Yiddish, you hold from yourself, you know. It was even though you outwardly talk like a nice person, but there's certain people who talk like a nice person, you can see that he's in love with himself, he really thinks he's God's gift. Even though he doesn't treat you bad, that's all self-complacent. The, uh, that's one form of gaiva, which is really what we're talking about now, the sense of self. The second sense of self, of course, is arrogance. Arrogance is where you have a sense of self as superior to others also. That's the second, that's called arrogance, haughtiness, whatever. And that's usually the form we recognize it in immediately. The third sense of self a person gets, and you'll notice it gets worse and worse, in the sense of how more central the person becomes, is when a person becomes a megalomania megalomaniac, egomaniac, where he thinks that not only is he somebody, not only is he greater than you, but he's the only thing around. You see, that's ego, uh, that's egomaniacal thinking. That's delusions of grand, grandeur, grandiosity, omnipotent fantasies, any kind of paranoid delusions you want to entertain. That's what it's all about. There the person has this incredible distorted sense of self as being the greatest being of all. Forget about better than others. The greatest of all even greater than God, if he admits there is a God altogether. And of course, if he does admit there is a God, he will usually wind up saying that, I am God, which is what you find many psychotic people saying, I am God, or I am some famous, and so on, whatever. That's the different levels of grandiosity. So therefore, those are the three sense of selves. And you see, of course, one is more and more distorted as time goes on. That a person gets by doing one of the four ways, right? In order to achieve what? The need to feel like a self which was taken away after the neshama was inserted or went into the guf. You recall that I had asked many questions previously and uh, very intriguing questions. 
And let's see now if we have the information necessary to answer these questions. The first question was, what is the fundamental psychological drive or need, and then you have a drive as a result of the need, that mankind has? And the answer is that even psychologically, the most fundamental need of all is self-worth. More things are done in the quest for self-worth, more activities are done than anything, any other need or drive. And even if it looks like you're doing things in order to survive, self-preservation, the truth is that self-worth is, goes piggyback on those other things too. Because every time you do something to survive, you're also achieving a sense of self. There are many things you do just to get a sense of self. You want to do, go out and develop a hobby, uh, do something meaningful or whatever. But even when you do things which are in quest of preservation, of, of survival, going for a living, going for this, taking a new course or whatever, there's always a sense of self as a result of the fact that you are involved in life, exercising being or whatever, mastery or your acquiring possessions. There's always something going on that's feeding you the sense of self. So, we begin to understand that the fundamental psychological drive is really self-worth. And we begin to understand that the reason why a person has a drive for self-worth is because it originates in a spiritual phenomenon, namely the fact that the neshama was placed in the goof. It's a psychological need, we see it psychologically, right? But it really emanates from the interaction between the neshama and the goof. This is what we begin to see is a fundamental psychological need and drive. Now, what is the fundamental psychological conflict? Now, we all know what a conflict is. A conflict is the anticipated frustration that you experience when you choose one of several alternatives. Obviously, you can only choose one alternative out of many, and the frustration that you feel is the conflict. That's what a conflict is. When you feel frustrated, because you can only choose one alternative out of one or out of two or many and you feel frustrated as a result. That's why conflict is such tremendous stress because you don't know which one to choose. And there are different kinds of conflict. But in order to have a conflict, you must have opposing or different choices which oppose each other in the sense that if you choose one, you do not get the other. Right? It's got to have a... It has to, there has to be an opposite one way and the other way. At least in the sense that if you get either or, if you get one, you don't get the other. That's what conflict is all about. If you can get both at the same time, there wouldn't be any conflict. So the idea that we're trying to understand now is, what is the fundamental conflict that we understand in terms of Yiddishkeit? And the answer to that is, the fundamental conflict is, does one think he is somebody, or does one think he's nobody? Or rather, that the Rabbani Shalom is everything. So we're back down to that fundamental rule of that only the Rabbani Shalom is a true being and exists or besides the Rabbani Shalom there's also myself and of course some people say that there is no Rabbani Shalom and there's only himself that's not even a yesh oid there's only self of course but that's the furtherance of, of, of feelings of self which we've gone into the grandiosity and so on but the fundamental conflict of an Odom, in every mitzvah he does, okay, is, and you know words, religion or Judaism imposes itself on you and says, I am going to force you to choose between the Rabbani Shalom or yourself. Everything you do, 
Yiddishkeit is telling you that that is the choice. And I had illustrated how every mitzvah, both in its content and in its form, its surah, always has that underlying battle. Einoid mevadoi or yeshid mevadoi. And the Rebbe Shalom puts you into that situation where you will always be conflicted by having to choose between yourself or having to choose between or having to choose on the side of the Rebbe Shalom that he is Einoid mevadoi. That's the fundamental conflict. And we begin to understand that in order to have a conflict you must have two sides, right? If the Rebbe Shalom wants me to choose that he is the only one there must be an opposing tendency where I want to say that I am also something and then I have a war. Am I something or is he something only? Right? So therefore the tendency of a man to say that he is something is the drive for self-worth. That creates the conflict or the other side. There's a need or a drive in the opposite direction that he says that he is somebody. And that comes about, as I mentioned, because of a spiritual origin. On the other side, there's the alternative direction by negating your own self-worth in a certain sense, not self-respect, but by negating the idea that you are something and you say that the Rabbinish Lodem is the only thing. And what tells you to do that? Terah. When the Rabbinish gave the Terah and he gave the mitzvahs and he says, observe the commandments, you're always conflicted. Should I do the commandments because he said or should I do what I want to do? So by his giving the Torah, and by his giving you the feelings of self-worth, you are immediately conflicted. The Rebbe has now beautifully set the stage, psychologically, for a Mohoma, where you will have to war, war, where you will have to war constantly between an assertion of self or an assertion of the Rebbe And every mitzvah, it deals with all the different areas that you interact, because in every area you're saying you're somebody. So you'll notice that all the 630 mitzvahs involve in all the different areas and in every area you have to say you're nobody. That's why 630 mitzvahs are spread over so many areas. The ownership, if you recall, I had gone through the mitzvahs. Because in all the areas that the mitzvahs encompass, basically encompass all the areas of man's activity. And in every area of activity you want to say you're somebody, the mitzvah is staring in the face to say you're nobody. And by saying you're nobody, what happens? Then the Rebbe Shalom comes back into the universe, if you remember the ideas of Tzimtzum. Because the Rebbe Shalom says, since you declared that I am the only one, I will now come back into the world and reality will reflect my unity. And therefore his, history reflects the amount of Hester and, and, and Hester and Hauer and the Bria. It all goes back to the exact same thing. But the idea here is that in order to give man the constant or set the stage for the conflict, the Rebbe Shalom gives him mitzvahs on one side, and on the second side, the worship gives him a drive for worth. And that is the fundamental concept of all. You see how it interestingly uh, integrates why the drive is a necessity in order to put yourself in the Muhammad of what the Rebbeinah wants. You either declare the Rebbeinah is Einayid Muvadoi or you declare that Yeshayid Muvadoi. This is the idea of the fundamental psychological conflict and why it is there and what it means. Because it, this, the psychological need is given to make sure you will be conflicted. Now that we have a status of war, you must choose which one. And that's the agir, that's the amelis, that's the effort that you have to put in. 
And as a result of that amelis, that effort, you get schar or whatever. Everything is based on that conflict. So hopefully what we now have is a very clear understanding that the psychological phenomena that you see is there to make sure that you will accomplish what you're here for. And that is to do the task of what? So Hashem actually forms the psychological apparatus of a man to reflect that. Because that's what Hashem wants you to do. In addition, now, the next question which I asked was what do we need self-worth for? It doesn't make sense. We don't need it for self-preservation. Remember I went through those psychological needs, adequacy, security, and so on? And the idea was that each one made sense because each one is necessary for you to do things which make sure that you keep living. You'll, contain, you'll maintain the conditions of life. But then I asked the question on, what about self-worth? What do you need it for? What do I have to feel like I'm somebody? I don't need it to keep living. I have to feel adequate because if I feel inadequate, I'll have to go out and develop competencies which will make sure I live. But what do I have to feel like I'm somebody? What do I need it for? The answer is you don't need it for physical survival. But you need it for the for the spiritual war that you must have. That's why you have it. The fourth question that I ask, that I had asked is, what do you always have to prove it for? You exist. Remember I said existence is its own worth. I don't have to prove I am. I am. Because I'm sitting here giving a shear, right? The answer to that is, you really don't have to prove it. But because there's an existential inferiority from the fact that you became Odom and the Shoma into a goof, Therefore, you must prove to yourself that you are something. But the truth is, of course, you are something. But you feel as if you're not because you are now severed from the Rabbanu Shalom. So you begin to get what's called existential gaiva. You receive existential inferiority by the fact that you are Adam. And the fact that you are an Adam now be- means that you are now striving to undo that feeling and begin to feel like you're something. That's the idea of existential gaiva. And so therefore, why prove it? You don't have to prove it. But the spiritual phenomenon which occurred forces you to engage in some kind of proof that you are something. Because the truth, why you feel, is merely uh, an illusion, actually. But it's set up in order to make sure that you are war with yourself. The other question, the next question we asked was, what is true worth then? What is true worth? Because I had asked, wait a minute. Because no matter how you feel about yourself, if you recall, it's all relative. If you grew up feeling very bad about yourself because you were not good intellectually, but let's say you were very good in sports. So the question was, if had you been brought up with the parents who were crazy about sports, you would feel great about yourself. So it's not because you really are worthless. It's because you were brought up in a family who didn't value your particular attribute. So therefore, your feelings about self, whether they be good or bad, is really not true. It all depends on what circumstance you were brought up in. If you were brought up in a circumstance where your parents are on, on welfare, of course you're going to feel inferior. If you were brought up in a circumstance where your parents have everything, you're going to feel great about yourself. But there's no reality to the real feelings that each one has. They merely feel that way because of the particular circumstances they were born. It's relative. So the question is then, your feelings of worth are relative, so the truth is they're really arbitrary. They don't really say what you're really worth. It's an illusion in that sense. So the question is, what is the true worth? And the answer to that is, true worth is not what you do, or productivity, or anything like that. 
A person gets a true sense of worth by declaring the unity of the Rabbani Shalom. Do you ever notice a tzaddik? A tzaddik is always doing something for the sake of God. Remember? He always negates his self-interest. Right? Remember there's two kinds of mitzvahs. A mitzvah that you would do even without the Rabbani Shalom commanding you. And then there's a mitzvah you would do, and the only reason why you're doing it is because he said to do it, right? Whatever. So those mitzvahs which you would do even if he didn't command you, so the whole purpose of the Mokoma is to get your self-interest out of that mitzvah and to do it only for his interest, which is Nachas Ruach, right? To give him a sense of satisfaction, Kav Yochel, right? Of course, God doesn't feel that way, but in human terms, that's what it means. In the mitzvahs that you don't want to do it, then you do what? You express his unity by doing what he wants. In other words, you do only for self-interest because obviously you don't want to do it. So there's always one, one of two ways you approach a mitzvah. You would do it anyway, or you would never do it unless he commanded you. And both the idea is to remove self-interest. That's the whole avoider. Which means, of course, that since he's the only being, it's only his interest that counts. So if that's the case, if a tzaddik is always doing that, he's always doing something for the Rabbi and he never has any self-interest whatsoever, this man should have a whopping inferiority complex. How does he have any sense of self? When he's successful in job, it's not me who does this, it's only the Rabbani Shalom that does it, right? So he denies himself the feeling that he gets from productivity. When he's doing anything, any pleasurable, he tries to minimize the pleasure, and he says that it's only the Rabbani Shalom. Since he wants me to do it, that's why I'm not doing it. And I don't want to experience any self-interest. Money, he tries not to collect, he's always giving away stucca, so he's not going to get any feelings of self from that. Possessions, he's always trying to minimize, and even if he does, he says, I don't really own it, it's all the rabbinic norms, and if I own it, it's merely to manage it, and to give it away, or whatever. So the point is that the tzaddik is always doing something which doesn't give him any self-worth. So why doesn't all tzaddik feel like inferiority, people? Why don't they feel inferior? And we look at the tzaddik, we see that there's a tremendous sense of self, there's a murdic strength. When you look at a tzaddik, there's a murdic strength that emanates from him. A power. If you want to look at uh, like Baba Chereva. Yeah, I mean, you know, for those who are about, you don't feel any feelings that he feels inferior about himself. There's a murdic sense, not of gaiva, but of self, of strength that emanates from him. Where did he get that? If he's not doing anything that gives people a sense of self, right? Seems to be a contradiction. The answer is that he has the greatest sense of self. Because when a person does the Ratzon Hashem, then somehow he gets a hashpah from the Rabbani Shalom himself. A spiritual nourishment in that sense. Where he mamish feels like himself. And really, it's what makes sense. When you declare the Rabbani Shalom is Enoi Mavadoi, what happens? You begin feeling the Rabbani Shalom again, because he comes back to you. Since you are testifying to his unity, if you begin experiencing him back again you begin feeling more shlemus. So even on a physical level or a psychological level, you begin experiencing the contact with the Rabbani Shalom. Except you're not aware that it's He. But you begin feeling that tremendous sense of self because you are, what's happening is on a spiritual level, you're slowly reuniting yourself with the Rabbani Shalom in a certain way. And that gives you a tremendous sense of self, which is true self-worth. So if you ask me what the true self-worth is, the answer is, how closely are you allied to the Rabbani Shalom? Because the fact that you see Tzaddikim shows you that they immediately feel that way, when they shouldn't. So where are they getting their sense of self? And the answer is because they're getting their sense of self from the only way to get their sense of self. 
And that is by doing the mitzvahs for the Rebbe Shalom, and the Rebbe Shalom himself begins to be mashpia on a ruchnis, a spiritual level, and they begin feeling it, and there's a greatest sense of strength. It automatically happens, but it's beyond the physical. Okay? So this is the understanding of where you really get your true sense of worth. So if you really want that true sense of worth, I advise you very heartily to engage in mitzvahs, because that's really when you feel it. There's a passage that says, In all your ways, know him. That's what it means. In all your ways means not only in mitzvahs, but in anything you do, when you walk downstairs or whatever, be aware of his part in your life, in the sense that you exist because he wants you to be. And you can only get things done because he allows that to happen. That's what it means. You know him. Not that he's absent most of the year and then every once in a while we think of the Bajdam. Shivisi Hashem Negdi Summit. And that people who reach that Madriga have the greatest sense of worth of all. Now, let's go further. We also uh, or begin to understand why the Adam, as an infant, uses what's called primary process thinking. And the answer is because primary process thinking is an operation which is a divine operation. But the soul still has feelings, or rather, it still does things as a result of it being the Shama, yet obviously in this world it doesn't work. So therefore it leaves off that way of handling problems, and it goes into reality testing, where it actually goes into reality to solve its problem. But the reason why it started out as an infant with this primary process uh, uh, problem-solving ability is because that's what it did before it entered the Guf. You see? So that primary process is like a vestigial process that the Neshama could use if it's out of the Guf, but when it's in the Guf, it's void. It cannot use that. It must relegate or it must be tied to the ways of the world. And that is, you can only get things done by acting and doing, not by willing or thinking. A person must experience primary process thinking, not as an infant, but as an adult, in dreams, for instance. What does a dream do? You know that many times you strive for something in the daytime hours when you're awake and you can't get it. And the frustration on that is very difficult to keep going. So what, what a person does is he dreams he about that he has it in a dream and that actually alleviates some of the frustration. So dreaming actually enables you to keep going. It alleviates a lot of the frustration of what you desire during the day. But dreaming would have no meaning if you couldn't reduce the drive. So primary process thinking reduces somewhat of the drive. So the idea of primary process thinking in order to enable you to go on and not be so frustrated and dream about it at night is an, is, is an important feature to enable a person to go on. That's why primary process thinking continues. Now, the next question of course was, was why does an infant have omnipotent fantasies? Where does it come from? And the answer because it's an immediate response or reaction to the fact that it has an existential inferiority and therefore it immediately wants to feel like something. And that's how it arises. Except because the ego is not sophisticated, it thinks it can do it through primary process. As it begins, it begins to have a sophisticated ego, it still goes after the omnipotent fantasies, but in a different way, in the realistic way. Money and possessions and so on. And the primary process pr uh, thinking or pattern that I used before, that method goes underground in terms of dreams or daydreams. Because you daydream if you're not making it in life. So you daydream. You know, people who are more failures, they daydream even more. 
because that's the only way. So you go back to the old way of getting things done or getting a sense of self. For instance, those people who always have dreams of daydreams of hero, they're always dreaming they're a hero of some sort, whatever. They, because obviously they're a great failure in their lives, so they're going back to the old process that the child used, which is primary process thinking, which originated from the real powers of the neshama. Except the person should drop that and get involved in the world. So we understand that a man is always striving for omnipotent fantasies. Except at the infant level he uses the method called primary process thinking. At the adult level he uses what's called secondary process or reality testing. Where he actually gets involved in reality. But no matter what he's doing he's always trying to prove himself something. Some, some sense of self-worth. And you either wind up with some kind of self-complacency, arrogance or egomania, whatever. Uh, or hopefully you won't wind up with any of those things. You wind up as an anonymous, which leads us into the next question of what is gaiva and what is anivas. If you recall, I asked you what is what does it mean gaiva? Gaiva means haughtiness, overbearingness, arrogance. And what does it mean by anivas? Humbleness, humility. Okay. Are these just traits, or are they fundamental, pivotal levels or traits? And the answer is, of course, they're pivotal. They're not just a trait. When Terence says you should be an onof, what is it really saying? It, it's saying that you should recognize Eneid Movadoi. That's what an onof is. What do we've come to the conclusion of a gaiva and an onof? That a gaiva is what? Is he who says, I am something too, Yeshid Movadoi. And an onof is somebody who says, Eneid Movadoi. I'm really nothing. But that's exactly the Muhammad. So gaiva, or the statement of Yeshid Movadoi, is that what you should avoid, conquer, and Eneid Mavadoi, which is, which is the uh, idea of Anivas, is what you should win of or make part of yourself. And when you say Eneid Mavadoi in all your activities, what are you called? Ananaf. You are called Ananaf because in every activity you are saying Eneid Mavadoi. So it comes out that Ananaf is the level, the desired and the objective of our entire quest is to be the honor, which means to say in all areas of man's activities. The gaiva, which is yeshed mavado, is the opposite. It's the idea that you're yeshed mavado in all the areas, and that's exactly what you're not supposed to say, because the fundamental war is eneid mavado, which is anivas, and yeshed mavado, which is gaiva. So we see that gaiva and anivas is not just a mida character trait, a good thing to have. It's the fundamental trait to have. Because when you're an honor, you have reached your objective in terms of what you must comprehend. And that is Enid Movadoi. So as a reward, what do we call you? An honor. So when you do that consistently, you now be call, you're now called an honor. And you have that pattern of declaring Enid Movadoi. Now, it's interesting that Chazal say certain interesting statements about Eneid Mavada. It says, Any person that has gases or ruach, which means gaiva, is as if he worshipped idols. That's what Chazal say. So the question is, what does worshipping idols have to do with thinking being hoary? So the answer is obvious. When you are about gaiva, what are you really saying? That there's God and me. But you're saying that there's a being besides God. So what do you really believe in? False idols. You are the false idol. It's referring to the self. It's ki'ilu avoid avodizara. As if. 
the, the languages as if you worship strange idols. You're not literally worshiping a strange idol. You're worshiping yourself. You've become that strange idol because you are saying that I am something too besides Rabban Shalom. That's the obvious connection between when you're about Gaiva, you're also worshiping strange idols, namely self. Because worship strange idols means that you believe in something besides the Rabban Shalom. And in this case, you believe in self besides the Rabban Shalom. And of course, that is a false idol. Also, we see by Moshe Rabbeinu that the relationship between Anivas, okay, and also Enid Novadoy. I'm saying that Anivas is what? That humility is really the pattern of a person always recognized Enid Novadoy. What did Moshe Rabbeinu say? What are we? We are nothing, right? And what does the Torah say about Moshe Rabbeinu? And the man Moses was the most humble man on earth. And the Torah is saying that Moshe Rabbeinu is the most humble man on earth. Nobody beats him. But was that an accident? No. Because Moshe realized, because he said, What am I? More. Nothing. What? What am I? Nothing. Therefore, he was the greatest honor of our nurse because that's exactly what Anivas is. Vanach Numor is honor of Mikol Odom Shabarats. And since he had the greatest hasoga, the greatest comprehension of Enid Mavad of the Rabbanishlam, because he actually was in Shemayim and he witnessed in Kabbalah's Torah, he went up to Hasina and so on. Therefore, logically, he would comprehend the greatest Enid Mavad. So therefore, we could predict that he would be the greatest honor. Simple. It's a logical conclusion. One follows from the other. And it says that He was greater than any man in Anivas humility. Any man. It doesn't say he was the greatest humble being. It says he was the greatest man. That means there's somebody greater than him. Who in Anivas. You know who they are? The Malachim. The Malachim are greater in humility than Moshe. Which is obvious. Because they stand right next to the Rebbe So their perception of Enid Muvadoi is greater than Moshe Rabbeinu's. So therefore they're, great, they're even greater in its humility. So we see there's an incredible correlation here. That once you've got the key, once you understand what Gaiv and Anivas, many Chazals get answered in terms of what they're really saying. Now, so therefore we begin to understand what Anivas and Gaiva is. We can understand why the Mesilas Hashem places Anivas as a level. Because it is a level. When you are an honor, what you really are is a person who consistently, in every act, is saying, So it's not one trait. It's an attitude toward everything. So therefore, it's a level. That on every act you do, you've got the attitude of a honor. Everything is And why does the Messiah Shalom, which was of course written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim which is the system that we're using, why is it the last the greatest level, because the greatest level is Eneid Muvadoi. That is the end. In the end, the man has to say Eneid Muvadoi. Or to put it another way, when a person's dying, what's the statement he's got to say? Shema Yisrael Hashem Lokeinu Hashem Echod. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, Eneid Muvadoi. So you're always testifying to Eneid Muvadoi. Therefore, Eneid Muvadoi, or in a descriptive term of a man, it's called a onof is the greatest level, it's the final level, and it's of course the last level. That's why it's in the end of Messiah's Shem. 
So that's the ideas of what Anivis and Gaiva. Then we also went into the idea of the... I gave you two instances of Gaiva. Two kinds of people, right? One who is very nice guy, but he's always into, he's li- into living, doing what he wants, right? But he's a nice guy, he doesn't speak condescendingly, he relates very well with people, but he loves to enjoy himself. I mean, he's into, he works well, he's got a great job and so on. Then the other kind of guy was a man who's very haughty, if you recall. So I asked him, which one is the real Gaiva? And the answer is, they're both Bagaivas. But one is what's called a Gavalev. He is haughty in his heart. He's self-complacent. This man is into doing what he wants. He doesn't feel he's greater than you. He, but he feels like he's a somebody. Self-complacency. But he doesn't feel he's better than you. But he feels like we're all somebodies. So he's into doing whatever he wants, expressing his will. That's Gaiva. Because when you express your will for the sense of feeling like somebody, you want to do things because you want to do them, you feel that you're working and you're making a living because of your powers, you want to go to a great restaurant and enjoy because you're hungry and you want to satisfy your pleasure, what is that? That's Gaiva of the self-complacency form. The other guy is the obvious about Gaiva. He's the arrogant, where he feels superior to other people. But the truth is they're both Bhagavas. Because they're both declaring what? Yeshid Nuvadoi. And that's what Gaiva is. But it's in different levels, as I pointed out, that there are three different levels. So that gives us an understanding of what Bhagavad is. But don't be fooled. Many people are Bhagavas, Gvalev, they are holding their heart, even though they may be very nice people. But they are still looking at you as Mudibagaivas. Because they hold from Zirch. They hold from themselves as really being somebody. Also, we went into the idea of what's the difference between self-respect and Gaiva. Which is a very important question. Many people fail to understand. But now we can understand it. Self-respect and Gaiva. Gaiva is when a person has a distorted sense of self. In other words, I am the one who gets everything done. I have talents because I am really somebody. It is my being. Since I am a being, before I have all these talents, I'm so intelligent, right? Uh, I've made the money because of my cunningness and so on. That's Gaiva. Because nothing you did is because of you. But a person who has self-respect is that whatever the Rabbanishalim gave me, I can really do. You, what's the opposite of self-respect? Inferiority, where a person says, nah, I can't think very well, I can't do this, I'm inadequate, or I'm inferior, and so on. That's false. Because if the Russian gave you intelligence, then you could use your intelligence. So a person has to have self-respect, he has to respect the self in terms of what he has, which means in terms of what was given to him. That if God gave me intelligence, it means I can use it. Not that I can't go... Or I can't learn because I really have poor intelligence. You know, I have very poor confidence in my abilities to perform in thinking or anything. That's wrong. Because the version gave you the wherewithal to do it, you truly can do it. So self-respect is the belief that what God gave you, because He is the real being, and what He gave you, you can really use. Gaiva is the sense that the reason why you have these things is because you are somebody. You see the difference? Clearly the difference between self-respect and Gaiva. Gaiva is a distortion and self-respect is a statement that <coughs> you also can do things because the Rebbe Shalom gave them to you to do. You can do them. There's no business of not being feeling that you can do them. Gaiva is the opposite. It's a distortion of self. And the idea of three kinds of Anivas, 
That was the last question. That there are three kinds of anivis. What does that mean? I describe three kinds of people who are humble. The first one who feels she's a person who's always doing good to others, but you know has a lot of problems, emotional problems, doesn't feel have a lot of, doesn't have a good self-image or whatever. Then the person. Who is a who, who looks outwardly? You know, he's uh, very humble. He speaks to you very nicely, but uh, inwardly he seems to hold that he can learn very well and so on. And the person who really get you get a real sense of feeling that he really feels as if he's uh, really nothing great. So the answer is that the first person is not an honor, the one who has emotional problems. The person has lacks self-respect. Not that the person has humility, because the person realizes. True, that God is the only being. True humility is a recognition of If I feel I'm nobody because I believe I'm nobody because I believe there's nothing here and even what God gave me I can't do, that's inferiority, that's shiftless. That's a, that's a mental, emotional disorder of inferiority. Not anivus. Anivus is a madrega that you have to work to. Shiftless is a disease or a disorder that you get if you come into certain situations. So the first person doesn't have anivas. That first person is, of course, a tremendous sense of inferiority, which he shouldn't have in the first place. He should have self-respect. The second case where a person uh, speaks, holds from himself, right? But he's really very nice to people and so on. He's really a bagaiva. Because even if he tries to be an honor in the sense that he feels that he wants to relate well with people, but the truth is, since he holds himself, don't be fooled by his acts of humility. You can tell when a person really holds from himself the self-complacency. And unfortunately there are many people who are very self-complacent that come across as great as former people in that sense. But there's a difference. A true honor, you really feel his anivas. People who come who feel that there's somebody and they get on the contrary, they get a lot of ego trips because they do mitzvahs. But they, they act from and so on. That's not anivas. That's really gaiva. And the third idea where a person who really acts humbly all the way, he is a true honor. Remember, anivus is the perception of Enid and that takes a lot of yagiyah and work. But mainly you feel only the Rabbanishlam is the only being. Shiftless or inferiority is not. It's a lack of self-respect, even what the Rabbanishlam gave you. You see? So there's a very big difference between shiftless and, uh, and anivus.